Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cloud-Based Mayhem, and Happy New Year. 2024 is here, incredibly. Before we get into this show with Jake Holland, I think you're going to really enjoy. He's been doing some pretty marvelous stuff over in Pakistan with uh, some of the boys over there, and a couple of we've had on the show. But anyway, before I get into that, a couple bits of housekeeping. We've got a lot of really great feedback on the show we just put up uh, last week with Louis Tapper and the New Zealand uh, Risk and Accident Report. Pretty fascinating stuff in that. And I wanted to read you an email from a listener and a buddy of mine that I just think is uh, is is fabulous and I think really summarizes in a lot of ways what Louis and I were, were getting at in that talk. Thank you for the interview with Louis Tapper. These are such tough conversations, but really important to have. Louis's comment about the risk-reward equation really resonated with me. Before I started my instruction, I tried to do some research on the relative risk of paragliding versus other things I'd participated in, rock climbing, scuba, dirt bike racing, etc. I really couldn't find anything that was helpful. So one of the first questions I asked my instructor was, just how dangerous is this? He replied, well, you drove here, right? The most dangerous part of the day is over. This particular myth was quickly debunked, as in the period of a month, three pilots from the area burned in and died. I also really hate that driving analogy. I was really at an inflection point in thinking that I might quit. During the same time I visited my parents, I can remember very vividly sitting in their living room and talking with my mom. She had stage four lymphoma and the dementia was really kicking her ass. When it came time for dinner, she began to psych herself up for the one rep max that was getting out of the chair and standing up. In that moment of a res- of of observing her, things became very clear. If I end up at that stage of life without having done this thing that engages me mentally, psychologically, physically, and at times provides moments of transcendence, I will regret it bitterly. If, on the other hand, I don't make it to that stage because of the same thing, well, I'm at peace with that. This is not to say that I approach flying with indifference to my life and health. Quite the contrary. I have a goal of taking my last flight sometime in my 80s, maybe a sledder on a mellow morning, maybe a chill flight of the dumps. I will come to the realization that after 30 plus years, I started late as a 50-year-old of amazing flights with amazing people. I had reached the end of that chapter and it was best to pack the gear away for good. This is why Louis's back of the napkin estimate that there's probably some 20% of the risk that is only avoidable if one never flies was so important. It implies a route forward. Be clear about your why and if you find that you're upside down on the risk-reward ratio and move on to whatever is next. Relentlessly work on your kiting, launches, and landings. Stay current with your SIV training. Be a competent armchair meteorologist and be smart about the weather you choose to go fly in. But once you've done all that, be at peace. Don't let the fear gnaw away at your psyche. You've done what you can. The world is an imperfect place and no one, <laughs> no one gets out of this bitch alive. Really liked that and appreciate it. And as I appreciate all of your comments. And again, I think it really summarizes what Louie was getting at there. So uh, put that in there, lodge that in your, in your uh, brain and, and uh, have fun. Next thing I wanted to talk about is insurance. I have the article up on the website. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com and just put in the search term insurance, you can see the article there that has been up for years and that I update very regularly. I just updated it again today. 
on all the various aspects of travel and insurance and SOS and inReach and all the things that you, I am suggesting you should look into, especially when you're traveling, if you're away from home. This is getting home. This is medical in country. If you've been hurt somewhere out of your country, a lot of most insurance doesn't cover that. If you're, you know, in Brazil or Colombia and you're from the States or Europe uh, and you need medical attention in country there, usually your own insurance isn't going to cover that. So that's what this article is all about. I have put in there for years that because this is what I was advised to do, that if you put in your emergency notes, if you hit your SOS on your spot or your inReach, that you have global rescue or equivalent, some MedJet or Medevac, something like that. I use global rescue, but you can use whatever you want. Then hopefully they, and they as Garmin now, it used to be the IERCC, they still use the IERCC, but it's all controlled by Garmin, would see the notes and call global rescue and let them take over. But there's been a lot of gray area there. It depends on who you talk to and they may, they may not. I still think it's not a bad idea, but now Global Rescue is officially saying that if they are not the first point of contact, then they are not going to be responsible for the search, which makes sense. You can't have two uh, parties going in there to try to do uh, the, the search and rescue. So but this creates a dilemma for us because when you're hitting your SOS, uh, you're probably, it's an emergency situation and you probably don't have cell service. That's why you're hitting your SOS. So I would still leave it in your notes, but just know that it's going to Garmin and they are most likely going to perform the search and rescue. Also, global rescue is not search. It's just rescue. But if you have a in-reach device, you have your Latin long, so there isn't much need for search. But anyway, just to be clear, if you hit your SOS, most likely it is going to be the IERCC, controlled by Garmin, that's going to be the search no matter where you are in the world, and you must have the high-risk benefit, which is only available through Garmin. It used to be $199 a year when it was IERCC or GEOS, and now it's $299 a year, so it's a little bit more expensive, but still very cheap insurance, and there is flying exclusions. So if you, they're going to come get you no matter what, even if you don't have any of this insurance, but you could be up for a very huge bill. So make sure you have that high-risk benefit. Make sure you have something like Global Rescue to get you home, and make sure you have some kind of insurance. What I use is IMG Signature, but again, you can see this all in the article for medical in-country. There are three different things. I know that's annoying, but that's the best I've been able to find there are some other insurances like World Nomads uh, and others that you'll see in the article that have kind of bundled those, but there's no way to bundle the high-risk benefit with your SOS, and sometimes you may need to use that. So make sure you understand how this all works. Reach out to me if you don't. I can help. I'm not an expert, but I have put a lot of time into trying to understand this. Some clarity on this actually just came across my desk a few weeks ago. A friend of mine was flying in the Himalaya in beer and they went pretty deep and uh, had to land out. And where they landed was, was really pretty exceptionally remote. No injuries, nothing was wrong, uh, but the decision to land was influenced by hypoxia. This pilot was not flying with oxygen and it was really, you know, hey, I've got global rescue 
And once they landed was, you know, hey, they were, this person was being told by their friends that were back at base, back in beer, that, hey, you know, walking out of there could be pretty dicey. And it's definitely going to be more than a couple days, most likely. This person was really remote, like I said. And so called a helicopter and and they came and, and got the pilot out of there. So it all went exceedingly well from that standpoint. But the global rescue isn't going to cover that kind of thing. And I was, I was called about this and uh, the pilot who had the global rescue coverage was pretty upset about this, but I agree 100% with the call. We can't be using insurance to get us out of making bad decisions uh, and going too deep. That's, you know, that's a personal choice. There was no medical reason for the evac here and that's what global rescue is so make sure you understand also what these insurance things cover and what they don't uh there's an argument here that well if they'd walked out it would have turned into a medical uh, uh reason and shouldn't we try to avoid that avoid that yes absolutely but again uh, paragliding is dangerous and enough i don't think we should be relying on insurance to create our own margin you know that's the same thing as flying really low when it's really turbulent if you don't have enough margin and your only way out is throwing your reserve that's just not smart flying so um you know also the pilot wasn't using oxygen which is you know makes it when you're up high in the Himalaya or when you're really tall, you don't think very well if you're not using oxygen. So again, these are all things that I believe, and I'm just a person, but I believe don't really fall on insurance hands. So make sure you understand what they do and don't cover and think about that, especially when you're in places that are really remote. Which brings us to this talk with Jake Holland. Jake reached out to me because he's been... He lives in Chamonix. He's a, he's a British pilot, lives in Chamonix. He's a filmmaker and skier, and he has been making these awesome films. I'm sure you've seen them with uh, Will Sim and and Fabi uh, and Aaron Duragati and Antoine Girard and Veso Ofkarov. He, he did The New Way Up last year, which has done really well on the film circuit scene, and I got to see his... It hasn't been released yet, but... Uh, the Magic of Freedom, his new film about their exploits this summer in Pakistan. And they're using, it's just really cool how paragliding has gone from, you know, back in the day it was used as a descent tool to now it's being used as an ascent tool with these amazing climbers. I said Fabi, Fabi Buell, uh, really accomplished climbers who are becoming really good pilots so they can avoid walking in you know, four or five days and just fly in in a couple hours and and land up super tall and do these amazing routes and then fly out. So it makes it way more efficient in the mountains, in some cases much, much safer, in other ways more dangerous, of course. You know, top landing at, at high altitudes is, is, uh, is not an easy task sometimes. But the films are amazing. The films are in the show notes for this episode. And 
the conversation I have with Jake about his history and filmmaking, and we talk about some of the stuff uh, I did in Alaska because he was he was curious about that and how that all went with Red Bull. But he's working with some awesome people, Tom Dodo and Horacio, and and these guys, uh, these amazing French climbers and pilots who are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible and really setting an example for uh, some amazing things that are going to keep happening and I'm sure will be happening in the future with the advent of doing this. You know, they're taking off from low, putting on their skis in the air, landing deep, going for a ski or or for a climb and then flying back down and being in, in home in bed in a comfortable bed and, and back in town. So a lot of fun with this one. Very, very inspiring stuff. Please enjoy this talk with Jay Collin. Cheers. Jake, thanks for reaching out, man. I appreciate it. It was it's kind of fun to explore a little different topic as we head into 2024. I just watched your terrific film, which I realize hasn't been released, so I don't know how much we can talk about that, but The Magic of Freedom, uh, gorgeous with you and and the boys over in Pakistan this summer with Veso and Mehdi and Will, and uh, and I, I really enjoyed your other film as well, which is out, and I understand doing the doing the touring a bit with uh, the project from the summer before. Is that right? It was two, two different summers, or... Yeah, that, that's right. Well, yeah, firstly, thanks for having me on. Uh, looking forward to, to chatting with you. Um, but yeah, as to regards to the, the film, we went to Pakistan in 20... Well, I went to Pakistan in 2022. Obviously, a lot of people have been going there for much longer than that. Um, and we made a, a film called The the New Way Up, uh, which is kind of like a paragliding, climbing combination movie. Um with Fabi and Will. That's actually available on YouTube and it's been sort of touring around at some festivals. And then from this year in 20, well, last year, I guess now, because we're just into 2024, but uh, last year in 2023, we went back uh, with a slightly different crowd of people and made another film called The Magic of Freedom, which is what I guess you were just watching maybe before. Yeah, this. it was it was, it was was brilliant, man. It made, me, made my head cold feel a lot better. I've told you I'm uh, fighting a pretty heavy cold right now, but it's uh, it, it made me smile, man. It's, a, it's an amazing place every time I see images. I got addicted to Pakistan back with Sylvester back in the day and his his tandem films. And just he, he, he was really what got me into Bibby all those years I mean, ago, you know? So he's... Yeah, that guy was legend, wild. Legend, yeah, and <laughs> to see legend. this kind of next you... step of of what. Well, let, let let's start there because a lot of the listeners might not even know what we're talking about. What are you guys doing? Uh, th this is you know those who haven't seen your film with Fabian Will uh, that kind of rocked the world. But there's probably people that haven't seen it and. It's it's pretty remarkable what's going on. Uh, just just take give us the summary of of kind of the the mission in these in these projects, and you know we're going to talk about your filmmaking a lot. But the, what are you guys doing? Sure. Um, so I think Fabi and Will both come at paragliding from perhaps a different side of the coin to a lot of people. 
um, they're both exceptional um, mountain athletes, sort of firstly. So Fabi was very well known as a, a climber, um, originally as a boulderer, but he's gone on to do some really amazing alpine climbing. Um, and then Will Sim, who's a British guy, Fabi is uh, German, but lives in France. And Will is British and he lives in, in Chamonix. And Will is an amazing character. I mean, he, I think before we went to, to Pakistan the first time, he had maybe been flying for like three years or something like this. And the kind of flights he was doing in, in Pakistan, and I could be getting that wrong. It could even mean less. But um, Will has an amazing amount of like ability combined with thoughtfulness. Um, and I think that's why he's such a great alpine climber. Um, but he's also a mountain guide. So that's, you know, what those guys have a background in. And myself, I'm a skier and I wouldn't call myself a great climber by any means, but I like being in the mountains and I've done a fair amount of, of, of climbing over the years. Um, and I think through probably not really, we definitely can't take credit for it because people have been using paragliders to get off mountains in the Alps um since back in the 80s i guess but uh with the sort of relatively recent advance is in in paragliders becoming such efficient machines for flying and how light they are what we wanted to do in pakistan was to start to use the paragliders as a way to be able to access these amazing mountains and take enough gear with us to then sort of play in in that playground that's that's there so that's yeah what we've been doing over there and it looks what is your own personal background with with flying is it you know the from the films the these are these are big peaks it's you know strong climb strong flying i haven't flown in pakistan i i understand in a lot of ways it's similar to people that have gone to beer in, in terms of you very often are flying without a ton of wind obviously sometimes you you get you get in bad situations as we do everywhere, but, uh, I understand mm. that for the most part, it's, it's, uh, would you say reasonable and reasonable flying, uh, even though that's really big mountains. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the best way to describe Pakistan is a bit like the Alps, but bigger. I really feel like it's working kind of like the Alps, which is the place I know. Well, at least I know that the area around Chamonix pretty well. I don't know all of the Alps well, but I, I feel like it's just a, a bigger version of that. Um, that's not to say that it can't get windy and scary, just like the Alps can get totally terrifying, you know, on the wrong day. But when it's working, it, it kind of just feels like a bigger version with higher climbs. makes sense. Yeah. Um, but going back to your previous question, um, flying for me, my, my dad's a sailplane mm. pilot. Um, so from a, a young age, I've always been kind of, interested in in flying in the sky and i did a little bit of that when i was you know kind of maybe in my mid-teens or something with him um but never really fully got into it somehow and then i i did a ski season when i was 20 and my roommate a guy called michael mondoon who's a uh, south african uh guy i think he lives in new zealand now acro pilot um he was going off and doing acro flights and stuff. And I was immediately like, wow, that looks amazing. And, uh, I persuaded him to sort of literally push me <laughs> off and <laughs> with, with a friend's wing. And that was how I got into it. 
And then I kind of left it alone a little bit for a few years. And then when I moved to, to Chamonix in France for skiing, um, I really kind of got back into it then and bought all the gear. And since then have been, been pretty. And how long ago was this? When did you get into it? Well, I probably, Hmm. That's a good question. I think I must've done that first ski season, maybe 14 years ago when I was 20, I'm 34 now. Um, and then I guess probably nine years ago, being back in Chamonix was when I started to, you know, fly more and I was working as a whitewater kite guide, which I know we have something in mm-hmm. common there in the summers. So I wasn't actually getting to fly all that much for the first few years, um, at least not in the good cross country mm-hmm. sort of days. But I was flying quite a lot in the winter and we have a, a very reliable like uh, lift and we can fly a lot in the winter. And I was getting to do some good springs and in, in, uh, good flights in the spring. But then probably, I don't know. The last six or seven years, I guess I've been putting a lot more time into my flying and, and trying to fly a lot around the Alps and enjoying the various different aspects of flying. So I'm a terrible acro pilot, but I like to dabble with that because I feel like it gives you a good base. Um, and I love to use the wing in any way I can in the mountains because um, I think it's a it's a great tool. And with these single skins, how small and light they've mm. got now. Like I, I recently got a new uh, Air Design Ronin and and that thing there is no reason to take it out of the ski bag. It's so tiny. You can just leave it in there and you never know. You know, you can just take wow. off whenever you whenever you get bored of skiing right. and the ski line the snow line runs yeah, out. Right. The uh, you said you moved to Chamonix for the skiing. Was that to guide or was that just to ski or is that is this a profession in any kind? No, not at all. I mean, my original sort of first career was um in outdoor education so taking people Mm. climbing and hill walking and kayaking in the uk but i i really got bitten by the white water bug since i was young that was my main sport to start with um and that took me on loads of adventures around the world and lots of amazing rivers in the himalayas and in canada and africa oh wow you're a serious paddler um yeah i mean we uh we i got to do a lot of kayaking that was that was really good. I don't do so much anymore, um, probably because of the paragliding, I guess. But I would like to <laughs> occasionally break the boat out and uh, wash off the cobwebs, mm. as it were. But um, no, coming to Chamonix, I was my first season, well, probably my first five seasons, I was just driving a bus from Chamonix to Geneva Airport. And I would normally do two days of that. And I was living in my camper van in the winter and just trying to ski as much mm. as I could dirt bag living um, perfect and that sounds wonderful yeah. <laughs> no those are great years and when did the filmmaking come along how long have you been doing that mm, well i first weirdly enough my parents both trained as photographers mm. um and my mum carried on working as a photographer but in a bit of a different sense to a normal she was working in hospitals as a medical photographer and my dad left the industry like years and years ago when he was much younger but um, I first picked up a camera when I was probably 17 or something like that. Um, I didn't know if I was inspired because that's what they'd done. But I was already starting to travel. I'd already been to Nepal with my kayak at that point. And I knew I wanted to try to document these trips in some kind of way. And photos for me seemed like a, <laughs> a good way. Um, I'm very dyslexic, so writing <laughs> wasn't wasn't always easy back then, although I enjoy it more now. But um 
yeah and then i think i have a vivid memory of the first gopro coming out and thinking that was a cool thing to have on kayaking mm. trips and started making goofy little films um from, from then and then you know kind of got a slightly nicer camera that had a video function in it and we started making more kayaking films and then at some point or another i finally decided like you know i really like this i'd like to make this my job and that was probably seven years ago maybe um and then since then i've been kind of full-time freelance with the video stuff and uh and sometimes photo so, stuff uh, yeah we talked about this before we started recording but i think it'd be fun to learn the the economics of filmmaking has always been really hard for me to get my head around i i, I got very lucky as a as <laughs> a, yeah, I, I got very lucky as a non-filmmaker on the other you know the the thing that kind of set it off for us was this little short film we did called 500 miles to nowhere and i was very much involved in the production side of that even though i was in the film mm. that was that was quite interesting but we, we did that for outside tv and but we had to spend a lot of our own personal money to get that done you know certainly didn't make money and and that that but it led to some cool things it, it led to both the red bull films that that i did uh, the rockies traverse with will gad and then the alaska uh, sorry north unknown with with dave turner and those were funded by red bull so we didn't have to worry about it that was that was pretty amazing but yeah, definitely. It was, you know, these days, because that's kind of dried up, that they, that region of Red Bull, I think it was the Explorer series, that they don't, that doesn't exist anymore. So uh, mm -hmm. I'm always fascinated by how you make it work as a job from, from the, at least from paragliding filming, because it seems hard to get enough uh, money on board to make it work. Yeah, I think uh, if I just relied on making a living from from making paragliding movies, then I would uh, I'd be back in the camper <laughs> van again pretty quick. <laughs> but um, I mean, that's not to say that I don't make some money from from paragliding films through different ways. Um, as a a filmmaker, I mean, for anyone looking to get into the the industry, I would say definitely go for it if you've got the passion for it um and i'm sure everyone has found their own way in um for me i th really think that i just i quit every other job i had and i said right i'm just gonna make this work mm. somehow and it did start to to work but it was lots of small gigs of different things to start with and a lot of hustling um it's still a lot of mm. hustling as a, a freelancer i think anyone who's a freelancer will be able to relate to the fact that there's always a bit of insecurity and always a bit of a worry of what's going to mm. be be next but yeah i guess for those last sort of six or seven years it's always worked out so a, a lot of my work tends to be with outdoor brands making films for them for marketing mm. purposes um try to in general take on projects that are more like people and athlete orientated than product mm. orientated in its principal form um yeah i guess a lot of my work comes from climbing brands and ski brands that's that's where a lot of my films are but i've worked on tv things i've worked on commercial mm. things i've worked in cinema stuff um and it's great. I love the variety of it. And I love all the people you meet and because 
especially in the adventure sports world, you get to hang out and meet really cool mm. people. Um, your your film New Way Up, uh, when when it when it tours and it goes to Kendall and Banff or whatever, I, I don't know what what uh, film festivals, the other ones it's done. I'm sure many, but uh, does that lead to a lot of work? Do those do, do you do people end up reaching out? Mm, I would say in principle, no, not really, <laughs> which always feels like a bit sad, but it's nice to see your work out there. And it's really nice to know that people are getting to watch it on a, a slightly bigger screen than, you know, their phone or whatever. So I think, I think the balance of film festivals of, for me, it works. For example, that film is kind of, I mean, we just went to Pakistan because we wanted to go to Pakistan. And at some point in there, we started to realize that was potentially going to be a pretty cool story. And I brought some basic camera stuff with me and I did my best to sort of document it as a, a one band person. Um, but at first, I mean, that was really just a passion mm. project. And it was great because um, Fabi, who is sponsored by uh, Adidas, uh, Terex, and also Petzl, those guys stepped up and they gave a bit mm. of money towards helping edit it and make it and stuff. So that was kind of how that was commercially viable, I guess. Um, and it's, you know, as Fabi would say, it's important for him to have someone to, you know, document these things for them to have value as athletes. Sure. So your relationship as a filmmaker with athletes is really, really important because often they're the guys that can help find money through brands to you know promote the brand but also get to get these wonderful projects mm. off the ground so how did you connect with these guys originally was that was this the first one was the new way up yeah um well that was two years ago now that we went to pakistan there and i had never met uh fabi before i was good friends with with will um but I, at least i don't think i've met fabi at that point uh but yeah i think Fabi had been speaking to Will and I think I've maybe reached out to Fabi in the past and said hey we should maybe try and do something together at some point because Fabi at this point I mean not on the Pakistan trip but before that I had kind of seen his rise to paragliding and I'd seen this cool climber doing a lot of interesting flights um, and I think I'd even flown past him in Annecy or mm -hmm. something like that and I've been like oh, that's Fabi uh, so we've been chatting a little bit but up until going to Pakistan, we didn't actually know each other. But Fabi's, uh, he's great. He's so easy to get on with and he's such a nice guy. So we hit it off straight away. Um, it's, it's really cool to me that, uh, you know, the original paragliders were really seen as a descent tool, you know, for alpinism. And, and now, you know, 40 years later, uh, you're well, 30 at least, uh, you know, they're being really used as an ascent tool and it's it's uh it's really amazing the lines that you guys are opening up and i mean this has been done in the alps for for longer but it's the the lines that you guys are opening you know from karimabad looks like pretty small little hike and you know gaining thousands of meters and just picking stuff off uh for the climbing community is this just blowing their minds i mean it, are we going to see a huge rush of of fabies come into the into the fold that's a good question i mean i think fabby is a very unique character and i think 
you know, he was probably pretty obsessive about bouldering and got very good as a boulderer. And then he really got the flying bug and became very obsessed with flying. And he's put thousands and thousands of hours in. And now he's a, he's not, you know, just a great combination sort of pilot who's using his climbing skills, but he is an amazing pilot full mm. stop. Um, and I, I really feel like the descent stuff, you know, it's only going to get more and more popular as wings become smaller, more accessible. Um, and I think in Chamonix already, there's many, many pilots who own a single skin wing. They don't own anything else. Um, and they'll use it, you know, regularly to get down off the mountain bit on skis or after a climb or a quick, a quick flunk lap. But then I feel like there's a very big difference in mindset to the sport to become someone who's, you know, a capable pilot who can fly in a place like Pakistan and, and use those strong thermals to, to get somewhere. So I think of course, there's going to be more and more people get into it and, and using the, the paraglider to do these combos, but it's not the low hanging fruit mm. of the tree. Mm. You know, it's, it takes some work to, as you more than know, to, to become a good pilot who's safe and skilled and can make good decisions and understand what the hell's going on. I remember uh, <laughs> I've said this before, but on my first really bigger bivy this was 2012 in the sierra so i'd done a little trip with john sylvester and beer and was just wow and uh, i got invited to join a group of pilots who were way better than me uh to to try to kind of go from the south end to the north end of the sierras we, we did a little film on this and i remember one day we had we were getting ready to take off some peak and you know there there had been some pretty amazing things that had already happened one one guy brad sander who was you know one of the legendary pakistan pilots uh, had gone in real hard and uh, another guy who was an ex-alps pilot had gotten scared by bears and you know so we were the, the team was getting whittled down and uh, and i remember uh you know we were getting ready to take off and nick grease who's a you know a friend of mine and a real mentor and somebody i'd worked with it he at the time he ran our u.s magazine uh, pilot and I said, oh, sh shouldn't everybody be doing this? He said, Are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> no, not everybody should be doing this. You know, this is the tippy tippy top. And since then, you know, this was back when we didn't have light gear. And, you know, I mean, since then, mm. and then COVID really changed everything in terms of hike and fly, especially in the Alps, because, you know, the ski lifts were shut down. And so, you know, hike and fly has just exploded, which is super exciting. But it's, you say in your film in the magic of freedom that you know top landing is 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 really dangerous it's it's a really you know you don't just stick it, it in is. and especially i wanted to ask you about that I, especially at really high altitudes i'm impressed that you guys can do that a lot of the top landing you were doing i know aaron when i had him on the show recently he was talking about you know that you guys are taking off putting your skis on in the air which is still hard for me to wrap my head around and that you know, so you could land on skis when you're up high, which makes a lot of sense. But a lot of the a lot of the landings, you know, you and Antoine and others I saw in the film were, you know, you're just sticking it on, on feet at five thousand plus, which you know your your trim speed's really fast. Uh, you know, and I I have found in my own, you know, when it's when there's snow, your depth is really tricky, depth perception. Mm. Uh, you know, you, you, I often get in that kind of frame of mind where I'm going to stick it in right here. And then you realize you stuck it in. You, you have a, you have a landing in the film. You're like, that wasn't my best landing where it's actually pretty steep. 
you know, you could stick it in and, oh, yeah. yeah, I'll be able to stick this. But then what if it's super icy? You're going for a ripper. Um, you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, so in uh, The Magic of Freedom, just because not many people would have seen it yet because it's just right. going around to a few festivals, we're, we're kind of, as I was talking about earlier, we're using the paragliders to be able to kind of thermal up and then fly some distance uh, and land on a peak with our skis and then ski something and then take off. And I think I would definitely not say that I've been a pioneer in this in any way. You know, there's like lots of people that have started doing this. And I remember watching a film from Saint Helier. I can't remember. Maybe it was called like Poor Man's Heli or something. And it came out years ago, but I was so blown away by this concept that they were basically using their paraglider like a helicopter and being able to go up and yeah anyway i thought that was the coolest thing that i've ever seen um and we're just basically trying to build mm. on that in pakistan um and what's unique about pakistan is that the thermal like the cloud base goes up really high you know it's not unheard of to be flying at six and a half maybe even seven thousand meters in when there's still you know a decent amount of snow on the mountain as well because that's of course the important thing and in the alps it's i mean i got to do a little bit of it last spring but most of the time by the time the cloud base is mm. high enough that you could land on a mountain the snow's like already turned bad and rotten totally isothermic and, and crap and the stuff we're dealing yeah, with in the X exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> so but in pakistan you know in sort of june time you still have potentially pretty good snow on the mm -hmm. mountain and you have a cloud base potentially way higher than it so you can actually you know use the paraglider successfully to to access this stuff and for the landings i am you know i wouldn't consider myself the most technical pilot in the world you know these guys who can put a wingtip on any point of the mountain they want and do these crazy big swoop landings like i've been trying to practice that stuff more and more but i'm definitely not a connoisseur of it so the, the top landing stuff does really scare me, I guess. Um, and you've got to be paying attention with the winds. And like you said, you can end up coming in really fast. So your trim speeds are, well, your just general flying speeds are higher. Um, Antoine, I think, has actually made a little calculation program to, to, to show it. Um, but rather than often, if you're flying at six and a half thousand meters, and if you went on full bar, you would probably be seeing maybe 65 to 70 kilometers mm -hmm. an hour. I don't know what that is in miles an hour, but, you know, yeah, a good 20% faster yep. probably. Um, so, but the glider just continues to work somehow and it still flares good. And, you know, provided you land a bit into wind, it's not normally mm. a problem. The carrying the skis part has been, I feel like that's what, I've, well we've all been experimenting and changing the first year i went i really just typically flew in a little string harness which wasn't that comfortable and it's actually string harnesses are really cold when yeah. you don't have that big piece of foam under yeah. your bum you get cold quick so i was doing things like taking the the skins on my skis what we used to stick to our skis to go uphill and putting them wow. under my bum for a bit of insulation and stuff and some of the days like on the main day that Fabi and Will did their climb on that day, we were, we needed as much weight as we could get, you know, to get all the climbing gear and the tents and everything like that. 
And that day, I think I didn't even fly with the reserve because I just <laughs> like I didn't have a very good front mounted reserve. I think I made a pouch out of a dry bag because I'd forgotten mine on that trip. But, you know, you start flying around and seven meters Oof. second thermals without a reserve and skis hanging from your feet and you start to in think, a string okay, bikini. Not... Oh, man. I'd... Yeah, it's not that clever. <laughs> um, so that year I ended up. What would we do? I think we'd. We'd put our, our rucksacks on with the skis between us and the rucksack with one piece of elastic with the binding stopping that from sliding mm -hmm. down. And we'd have the arm straps of our rucksack uh, clipped to the carabiners with a bit of cord. So as soon as we'd take off, we'd then like get out of the rucksack and let the thing slide down under your bum with your skis between you and your bag almost i don't know if that's going to make no, sense to people but it meant that you didn't have the weight of the rucksack pulling you back and then you also get a bit of protection mm. and from that position the interesting thing is the boys had sort of developed the system where you can pull the ski out and then put it on your foot and that's pretty cool because then you can land with your your skis on um but it definitely involves a bit of yoga flexibility that i don't particularly <laughs> is possess. it anyone ever <laughs> drop their skis um i don't know like people have been using some people have been using a little strap mm. on them i think i never really particularly well maybe i have one on one season um but the possibility of dropping your skis is definitely like there mm. for sure and you get good at flying with one hand and you try to do all this when you're a bit out away from the, the well and you're trying to do all this like, while filming too that's what i'm in practice i kept imagining <laughs> putting myself in your position i don't think i'd be very comfortable with this <laughs> yeah the boys laugh at me because they're like yeah man most of the time you don't even have your hands on the controls you're fiddling with a camera <laughs> or you got a ski in your hand or something stupid but it's amazing how well a zeolite flies without your hands on the controls. That's what I yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just gotta trust it. Yeah, but you get good with one hand. You can do a, a lot of piloting with one hand with a bit of bit of practice. Um, but this year, I was I was less impressed with the string harness idea. Like the more I did it, the more I started to think this could go pretty wrong. Um, so this year, Air Design made me like a light version of their sock. And Will was using like a BV1. Um, and I don't think I flew in a string harness once mm. this year. I just accepted I was going to have a bit more weight on my back when I was skiing. I was going to have way more comfort being in a pod harness um, and way more safety because you have protection, you have a properly mounted reserve. And then what we do is we hang the skis going down the side of us. Um, so you have one kind of loop on your shoulder strap hanging off that you put the, the nose of the skis into. And then you have one loop, which is openable by like a buckle or something like that, that you can slide the other part of the ski in. And then on the launch, you feel like a total cluster, mm. you know, whatever. Like it's it's horrible because the launch is hot in Kurumbad. It's probably 30 Ooh. or more than 30 degrees. It's super, super sandy. Um, it's really... It's a bit gusty and unpredictable sometimes. It's not the smoothest place to mm. take off. And then you've got your feet slopping around in plastic ski boots that are just getting super sweaty. And you're dressed up in all your down jackets and everything. Because once you get to six and a half thousand meters, it's yeah, cold up there. Um, and then, yeah, you're like trying to inflate your wing without getting your skis that are slapping against your leg caught on the lines. And 
ski edges are sharp so you don't want to snap a line or whatever <laughs> and then once you get into the air the skis actually do just hang there quite nicely and it's it's fine once you're in how, the air. how heavy um, is your kit on the airplane getting all this stuff there oh heavy yeah, yeah really because you've got drones um, and cameras and batteries and skis and ice axes and crampons i imagine and you got the whole kit right? yeah everything yeah Jesus. so turkish airlines we can very much recommend they they don't publicize it that well but you get a free ski bag on a lot of the international flights so as our main bag i normally take like a ozone tandem rucksack and fill that as much as i can up to the, the weight limit and then with the ski bag then that's the same and then I think this year my hand luggage was like 26 kilos or something. Jeez. I was like desperately trying to wait, lift it up, making it look like <laughs> <laughs> that thing's like heavier than most people's check-in bag. Amazing. Um, how are you, yeah. how are you keeping all that going in the cold? Um, I don't know. I feel like modern camera gear and batteries do You're just fine. work pretty well. And the reality is of what we're doing in Karimabad, and I think this is what I want to talk to you about, is we've had very different experiences of the films we've made because <clears throat> the crazy stuff you know you did on your Alaskan traverse where you're out there for 38 days yeah. or <laughs> whatever it was um, versus in Karimabad, sure, maybe we'll sort of sleep out and up there for two or maybe three days at the longest. But normally you can just you know fly straight back to Krumabad and you get back to the comfort of the hotel and I think this is where the paragliders are really revolutionizing things mm -hmm. because when I at least from the the background I come from with a kayak I always felt like traveling with a kayak was a great way to see a place especially in Asia where you're putting it on a bus you're traveling for 20 hours you meet loads of people you get on the river you paddle down the river if there's any villages along the way you meet people you get to either you know cuisine and you get to understand what the culture is whereas on a lot of mountaineering expeditions sure you fly in and you maybe have a night or two in a, in a town but then you go to a base camp and okay you get to meet and know your chef pretty well but beyond that you're just sat in a cold glaciated area trudging up and down the same mountain until you finally manage to climb mm. the thing whereas with the paraglider and Kurumbad, what's amazing is that you know we take a short jeep ride up towards the takeoff walk for 30 minutes um take off you know and that morning you've probably had a really good breakfast that's been cooked you for you by someone take off fly into the mountains make a camp do what you want to do and then come back down and eat curry <laughs> that night and you know and then maybe do 10 of those in a trip rather than just one thing mm. in a trip oh, amazing where, where would you say you know scale of one to ten uh risk factor you know, there's a segment of your 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 latest film the magic freedom with antoine at the end where he goes up to <laughs> you know he does a very antoine-esque thing he goes up summits by himself what was the name of that mountain Duran. uh you know it's over seven thousand meters he spends the night up there flies down the next day right before the gust front you know it looked like he was pretty unhappy about how that kind of transpired you know he was obviously putting himself in a lot more risk than even antoine wants to be in which is probably mm. probably allows the most risk of anybody i would think in general <laughs> you know for, 
<laughs> yeah, he definitely has different uh, risk tolerances to a lot of people. Yeah, that's for, for sure. sure. But what, how would you compare what you guys are doing? I mean, is this something, obviously you wouldn't do this, but would you go back year after year after year and keep doing this? Or do you feel like you're really, you know, pedal to the metal every time he goes and do this? I, what I'm What I'm looking for is how accessible is this to the listener to the normal pilot mm. to the you know because it it, sure. it it doesn't look easy what you guys are doing i mean it sounds easy but it's it's there's a lot to it you know there's all this there's all the gear and it's high mountains and it's you know it's mountains we've got to we got to respect them yeah i mean, you definitely got to respect the mountains and the the flying conditions around them i I'm definitely not going to say that what we're doing is totally safe. Like you can't no. say that it's safe. It's, um, it's taking several things that are already kind of dangerous and then adding them together and adding all sorts of extra elements in there. Um, but I think usually when you go about it in a logical way and you think about what you're trying to do, and I mean, I've spent my whole life like you have, processing risk and trying to understand risk and make good decisions um you know i think it's it's achievable for the for the right people with the right skill set for sure but there's always that extra factor with the mountains and and flying and most adventure sports is there's elements of things that you won't ever fully understand or there's elements of weather that you won't always entirely be able to predict and we're human and we're filled with mistakes and we make mistakes um so i i don't know i think that extra factor with the weather probably more than anything can can catch mm. you out there in pakistan i i don't know if i would really recommend it as a flying destination for it's definitely not a place for mm. everyone it's definitely for advanced pilots who are looking for a, a, a venture i mean the crazy thing is there's local pakistani guys who are wonderful wonderful people who are learning to fly in mm. this place so it's kind of accessible in that way but I, i've not flown in beer but i don't think it's the place that intermediate people should be going mm. to do cross-country flights because it's it's big like it's really big and it can be really strong um and it can it's often this year it was rare to be flying in less than 15 kilometers an hour mm. of wind. And sometimes we'd have 30 kilometers an hour of wind up high. So it's not Indeed. like the winds are always super light and you get some strange phenomenons that you need to get your head around. Um, for anyone that's seen uh, John Sylvester's film, Birdman of the Karakoram, there's a part in this where he says there's like Hunza's speciality is these cloud bursts. And it really is like they, they happen regularly and you have to keep an eye on it. And when they go, they just boom, mm. like it just suddenly the sky just jacks up. And, and uh, now after spending sort of, I don't know, uh, maybe three months in the place, I have a better understanding of when that's going to happen. But you, you need to, uh, you need to be paying attention for those yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, your option a b c reduces really fastly when you're thousands of meters off the ground you know if if you're not not reading the sky well mm. and get caught out i imagine it'd be awfully terrifying it can be yeah and i think having the ability to land on those mountains 
um, because there's a lot of top landable places if you understand snow slopes and crevasses and where's good and where's not um and you know we we top landed a lot in that thing and skied quite a lot of different lines that are not always shown in the film because you only have so much time but there's been definitely times where it's got quite strong and we've just landed and let the thing blow out and then carry on going mm. again and if you don't have that sort of mountaineering background then you you know you're not probably going to mm. do that um, or if you do do that then you're probably putting yourself in a, a bit of a situation so more and more i was just enjoying always flying with skis mm. because it gives you so many options yeah. uh, how, how important is a, you know a real backcountry understanding of snow there then it looked in, in the film i was you know mm. the most of the skiing you guys were doing looked really stable um, you know, just looked like spring skiing. It didn't look, you know, are you guys digging pits? Is it, is it, are you getting a lot of snow in these mm. big storms? We definitely were getting fresh snow and it is kind of sometimes a bit hard to work out exactly what is going on. But um, most of the time we were skiing was spring snow and most of your worry is like it getting too hot. Mm. Um, so I think if you can understand the principles of spring skiing, you can quite quickly apply them to there. So, but, so, so I your, mean, your first... main hazard is, is wet, wet slides, wet, wet yeah. slides, I would say, but that's not to say that we weren't skiing powder at times. And I remember when we went to do the Golmet tower with Fabian will, when they climbed it, I, I didn't go all the way up it. I just filmed it. But, um, the, the, you know, it had snowed quite a lot leading up to that. And the core had like purged quite big and you're landing amongst loads of crevasses and there's seracs all around you. And you can put yourself mm. as in as wild a terrain as you could ever want <laughs> right. to really. You, yeah. you have a shot in there when those guys are climbing that I couldn't tell, are you flying and shooting that? Or was that a drone? No, that Jesus, was a drone. Amazing. So, um, yeah, I mean, modern drone equipment is what are you incredible. Using? And on the first trip, I had a Mavic 2. And now I had, I think this trip, we had a Mavic 3 Pro with us. Um, so it's not the smallest of drones, and it's not the biggest of drones. It's, you know, it's definitely some extra weight to be mm. chucking in your bag, which is already quite mm. heavy. Um, but as someone who enjoys making films, I feel like it's worth the trade because you just get shots you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. Yeah, some of that, some of that um, footage was just outrageous. So those, the these drones, how? What's the difference in flying in those kind of altitudes? Is normal? Are you just burning a lot more battery? Yeah, I mean, I was really impressed actually how much difference there was between the Mavic Two and the Mavic Three mm. when Fabi and Will climbed the Golmet Tower. And for anyone that's not sort of seen that film yet um the new way up this tower is about 5800 meters high and it had been attempted by quite a few teams in the past and what had shut down most of the people was actually getting to the route because the glaciated terrain is just difficult you know it's like really hard to get up there especially with porters to make a base camp um so many attempts had failed before they kind of even reached it and what was beautiful with the paragliders was to be able to fly, you know, within like an hour straight in and land at the foot of, of the glacier, which would maybe take like four or five days of quite treacherous walking. Um, but yeah, so Fabian will climb this tower 
um, which there's kind of a long snow couloir and then it leads to some pretty technical um, mixed uh, climbing to, to the summit. And I joined them to, to the coal. I was, man, I was so ill. Getting up to that coal was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I was, I had a really bad chest infection Ooh. and it's like 5,000 meters. We were sleeping uh, that night and I was barely, felt like I was barely breathing, Ooh. but somehow I made it up to the coal and I was so glad I did. And with the, the Mavic two, I was like just about able to get up, you know, a few hundred meters and, and film them, but you're, desperately kind of like realizing that you're running out of battery so you do a bit hope that they're in a good position on the climb bring the thing back down again as quickly as you can warm it back up again and then send it back up and i definitely didn't get anywhere as near as much drone footage as i would like to have but the stuff we got turned out pretty yeah, pretty amazing it's amazing we'll, it's really incredible yeah will fabi were really really stoked and sort of be able to do this first ascent of the tower and you know have this footage and this memento of it so that was that was really nice but the mavic 3 this year that definitely performed better in the altitude it gained height much faster and uh was you know the battery was lasting much longer so i feel i feel like each generation of drone that comes is just giving filmmakers better and better tools are there other teams out there doing what you guys are doing uh, you know since your film came out last year and i mean i know that your film last year you had there's a, a little bit of footage with aaron in it you know he went that's when he broke the asian record he had those two monster flights you got a big one yourself but uh it, you know is this putting it more on the map are you seeing more yeah i feel this year, there was several teams out. So there was kind of like a South African team that went to Baltoro that you, you already did a, a podcast yeah. with those guys. And and some of them were in um, Karimabad when, when mm. we were. And that was really nice to sort of meet them and see them flying. And then there was also a Swiss team that was there. And they, they had a real mixed sort of uh, skill set, uh, I would say. Like some of them were tandem pilots and obviously pretty pretty good pilots and then some of them were really good climbers and a couple of them were wingsuit base oh, jumpers wow. and yeah they were trying to do a whole bunch of stuff um they got a bit shut down on the by the weather which was a shame so they they didn't get to kind of achieve their their final goal as it were but it, they seem to have a really good time and it is great to, you know it's nice when you go out to a place and you see see more people but i think this year I've had a lot of people writing me saying like, Oh, I really want to go. And I feel like the films are maybe, yeah, bring the place more attention with Anton's films. Mm. And, you know, it's not just me that's made films there. Um, so I, I do think that there's going to be a sudden influx in people this season mm. for sure. All looking to do probably similar <laughs> sort of silly adventures. <laughs> Tell me about the French. I, I am always so impressed that it seems to be the French, whether it's slacklining, you know, bass jumping music. Uh, they're just fabulous, aren't they? They, they really push it and always have it must be quite lovely hanging out with this group that and well i mean but you said fabby's german i didn't know that actually but uh you know it, it's it, it must be quite fun to hang out with folks who are just constantly dreaming yeah i mean i think as you kind of already alluded to earlier anton definitely has a higher risk profile than than most people and i think 
probably more than anyone, Anton's flown in Pakistan. And just from a flying perspective, you take the mountaineering out of it. He's made tons of amazing flights there. Um, John Sylvester did a line um, back in the, I don't know, when 90s or something like this, past Spantic. And Anton went on to repeat that. And me and Vesso did that line this year. And that's like a, a wild line. You go out sort of, in this terrain where you know that you'll be walking for four or five days if you were to land there, if, if you can even still walk. Um, so I feel like you have these characters like Anton who just have these big ideas and they just, I don't know, get after it and, and do it. And somehow I think these, maybe it's people that grow up in these mountains, you know, they're, they're influenced by them on their spirit and it gives them, these big dreams to, to, to do stuff. And yeah, Mehdi, who was with us this year, he's a, a French mountain guide. and a pilot. character. He's a, an amazing character. He's a super nice guy. Um, and a lot of actually just coincidentally this year, a lot of my flights ended up being with Mehdi. Um, and yeah, he, you can just see, he really loves it and he's very skilled. You know, he's a mountain guide as well as a, a uh, tandem pilot and he probably is more of a, like a free ride paraglider in this kind of terrain than anyone i've ever seen he's doing wingtip touches everywhere on peaks that you would <laughs> he's just trying to fly over and survive and yeah there's just a i don't know a spirit to these people that yeah. they bring. tell me about your you just did a tanzania trip with tom and horacio what 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 went down there yeah, so that was fun, actually. Uh, Red Bull got involved to help us with this one. So, you know, this is that's how that's being financed. And at some point, it should become a, a film on the Red Bull TV. Um, before speaking with you, actually, I was just doing some of the editing towards it. Um, but, uh, yeah, Tom and, and Horacio. I actually met Horacio in Nepal uh, two years ago. Um, we were, had been invited uh, to climb Manaslu and try and fly from it unfortunately the weather was terrible that year and it was yeah it turned into quite a disastrous trip with some uh big avalanches and several people being killed and stuff it wasn't uh it wasn't the best trip by any means but um so we didn't really get to fly unfortunately very much but I, I met Horacio there um and we hung out a lot together in the base camp and it was it was super nice and he's he's an amazing guy um and they did a big trip. Um, they had this search project that ran for years where they did many great paragliding films. Um, but back in 2011, they drove the length of Africa, um, finding flying spots all the way down. And a place that they had spent a bit of time in was Tanzania. Um, but they hadn't really got to spend as much time as they wanted mm -hmm. to there. And they, they managed to do some flying and it was rowdy um but they thought the potential would be pretty high uh if you were to go back and try to do more and i think probably even more than that the the maasai tribes that they met there they just found these people really fascinating and they wanted to go back and spend more time that, with these people and just learn more about their culture um and i think that had been going in their in their minds for quite some mm. years and this year we made it happen um, and they kindly invited me to come and, and, and film the trip. 
Um, and it was an amazing experience, man. Like the, the people that we, that we met there, these Maasai people who just live in this, you know, such unique way with such unique beliefs that are very different to ours, but really wonderful, kind, loving people. And, uh, I mean, Tom and Horatio were even able to take some of them on a tandem wow, cool. paragliding flight, which is really cool. And yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a special trip. It was somewhere between a paragliding trip and a cultural mm. trip. Um, we, we landed on, uh, the old Delalungai, which is the only active volcano in Tanzania. Cool. It's about 3000 meters and it, it looks like the kind of volcano you draw as a child you know it's like right. that kind of like classic like thing and we were able to fly more or less right over the top of it in the end and it's got this amazing crater and at night time you can see it like bubbling orange lava and stuff so it was a, it was a cool trip yeah, i imagine that'd be really cool I, I really like both of those guys so much they're just amazing i mean obviously incredible pilots but again the, the dreamer side uh, especially of tom and put these constantly putting stuff together and he has for a long time it's really impressive He's yeah dreamer. tom is a very unique individual he like He's a, a proper adventurer, you know, he likes going off on these big trips. He's like you, he's done a lot of sailing, which I, I imagine must give you a lot of great adventures. Um, but year on year, he seems to keep finding these ideas and doing these big trips. And he's got something about him, you know, like a certain level of, I don't know if professionalism is the right word in the industry, but he's been able to make it his yeah. career, which is you know making your dream a career is not uh not easy but tom seems to i think be you know in, in paragliding there's got to be less than five yeah I, I i can't think of too many others you know maybe kriegel there's not there's not that many that have been you know can just live on that alone and that's what he's been able to do it's very mm -hmm. it's very impressive and it's yeah very inspiring but i think it's for a lot of hard work mm -hmm. and you know the right personality and he's he's a lovely guy and i think people believe in yeah. him and, yeah. yeah you start you start to develop a track record of you know pulling stuff off and yeah that was that that was that was kind of an interesting thing with the with the red bull uh the two films we did there were i was i was surprised how adamant that they were that you had to pull it off you know it wasn't it wasn't pressure but it was you know that they want you to do stuff that hasn't been done before but they also want you to complete mm. it <laughs> it's kind of interesting because interesting. both of both of them with, with with canada we knew that line could go even no one no one had flown it uh well i mean sailplanes had flown it but so that that gave us enough of the this is just gonna take the time you know we'll get there but with alaska we really had I had flown quite quite a bit up there in a super cub and, you know, I'd gotten out of the cub and flown around a little bit and, you know, I, I thought it could go, but I definitely didn't have any, you know, I mean, definitely you, you see this in the film too. I mean, Red Bull just cut us off. They just said, okay, you got to Denali. That's far enough. You know, we're, we're pulling out. We're not going to keep funding this. And I said, well, I have to keep going, but it was, you know, so that, that was interesting, but yeah, they, they, uh, it was just an interesting kind of approach to, because I think in filmmaking, it's great to fail. I think it's fantastic to fail. You know, I mean, the, we, we, we do fail <laughs> a lot. Uh, and yeah. It, 
nothing uh nothing's guaranteed <laughs> nothing normally goes first like, time especially when you're doing stuff that's on the the limit of and no one's done yeah. it before like failing is much more likely than right. succeeding yeah for sure <laughs> uh, that's why antoine's you know the other thing too that i found interesting for working with red bull is that the, the option of doing something alone wasn't an option you know they they just don't think that makes good filmmaking. Uh, and, and, and I think mm. Antoine has proven that's not the case. Uh, you know, you can, you, I think the audience can, it's a more meditative potential film of just watching struggle. And that can be fun as well. You don't have the conversation. You don't have the dynamic of, of uh, people, but yeah, I, it was, it, it's been interesting since the Alaska one came out that, that, you know, we, we weren't really able to spend much time after Dave left, you know, and that, but that was still a third of the route, but we only had 52 minutes. So I think that last bit was only seven minutes long, but that was a pretty wild week for me, you know, just being totally alone. Cause I didn't yeah. have, there was nobody, there was no Dave and there was no film crew. It was just me. And, okay. uh, and it's hard to tell that because there's all this great helicopter footage, but that was actually done after I'd completed it. We went back in there on an epic day. Well, I wanted to ask you about <laughs> was pretty, that. Yeah. So that was, it was faked really. Uh, and but yeah. it was, yeah, I mean, it was, I think it would have been in, in a lot of ways, a more interesting film to have, to have done more of that stuff and to, to have done more of the being alone. Yeah. I feel like as a filmmaker, this is always something that, I'm not always something, but something you're often butting your head up against is that, you know, if you want this to be your career and make a livelihood out of it, there needs to be some give and take. And you need to find, you know, firstly, a company that believes in the project and wants to fund it for, for whatever reason that might be. But you're then sort of sharing your vision mm. with them and they're sharing theirs with yours. So you might not get quite as much creative control as you, you hope for, but also on the plus side, you know, like Red Bull funding your, your trip and paying for all the helis and stuff. And I think that's like a very different experience to what we've mm. been doing in terms of, I feel like the two films I've made, they've been really made on a, a shoestring. Right. Like we just go and try our best to film with GoPros and I try to get the drone out and, I probably annoying and stick to the camera in everyone's face all the time trying to construct a, a story, but there's not any helicopter or, or anything like that. And I think with the, the most recent film, actually it was, it was funded by a grant mm. uh, by Kendall mountain um, film festival and uh, Kailas, which is a Chinese um, outdoor equipment brand. They, they put some money into this grant and I applied for that, thinking not in a thousand years that we'd that we'd win it but uh we did win it and it wasn't a huge amount of money but it was enough that it paid me my time to then come back and, and think about how i wanted to make that film and and edit it and and i didn't have as much time as i wanted to with other more commercial gigs and, and stuff like that in the end but was was really nice was being able to make something that i wanted to make and no one else mm to tell me like no you can't do yeah that that was um, something so you know real water productions did both of the red bull films and i i could see that there was there was always a ton of headbutting there you know brian smith was the director of both and you know so he was in charge of the story uh and it's pretty interesting 
I never had to deal with any of this, but it was pretty interesting watching him at times be really frustrated with just being told from Austria what to do. And just, but you're not here. That's interesting. <laughs> how can yeah. you, you don't, I mean, I mean the, what do you, how can you have an opinion here? <laughs> yeah. I guess what was cool about the Tanzania trip, and I don't know if, I think our budget was considerably smaller. Like we weren't flying helicopters right. around or anything like that. You know, they just paid for me to be able to, to go there and do a bit of filming. But um, the guy that I was working with from, from that office, he was super cool. Mm. He never really like, try to interfere and even afterwards when i've been like handing off footage and, and stuff i really appreciated the attitude he was like hey man you did a great job you're there by yourself like even if it had failed don't worry like you're just doing your best and we understand these things don't always always go according to plan mm. but i wonder when you know you have more budget in there and helicopters flying yeah. around and lots of recce trips whether that starts to uh pull people's strings a bit i think so i think it's just you know there's just more on the line i guess from the production standpoint and you know it's it was it was fantastic i I learned a lot from from will certainly of of just you know hey how do we manage ourselves uh, from a risk standpoint because we're making this film i was really really Mm. glad i did my first big one with him because it was i I learned a lot from him because for him it wasn't his first rodeo you know he'd done a ton of them and it, it was it was quite nice. I'm sure what you have learned filming these guys too. You know, you can stick the camera in your face too, but I'm sure there are times where it's just okay. We have to put the filming aside now, and and this is you know we have to we have to just be pilots now or athletes or climbers yeah. or you know because this is we're now on the edge and that we have to definitely. And you, as a filmmaker, that's something, you know, as a filmmaker who's very actively participating, mm. you have to really know where that line is for yourself and yeah. be like, okay, now is time to just focus and stay safe and make your decisions versus like, now is a good time to get the camera out yeah. and film. And of course, there's moments that you like don't capture as well as you want to, but you just can't do everything <laughs> when you're, you're trying to, you know, fly in these crazy places and... Film. And you're you're doing all the you editing as well. Everything. Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah. <sighs> For those two films, I was doing all the editing, Jeez. and uh, I think the way I came into filmmaking by it being like this gradual, slow process of making little things myself, I feel like I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. You know, I've had to learn a lot of things along the way, and of course, a professional editor probably will do a better job than me um but there's not always the budget for that and you know on bigger productions i love to be able to pay for Mm. an editor who's going to do a great job but on these fun little paragliding movies it yeah tends to be so let's (laughs) let's just blow everybody's mind here real quickly how much how many hours of footage did you have in say the the new way up versus how many hours did you put into editing (laughs) oh i mean i wouldn't have any i'm pretty sure i had five i mean on that trip in pakistan we went away for seven weeks so we were away for probably the longest i've ever been on a on a on a trip and we also i mean we did loads of different really fun things um and we also went to the baltoro and flew in the baltoro and tons of that stuff just you know it doesn't make it into the edit and it's it's a horrible feeling because you know there's like other people on that 
trip who you would like to include more of their flying and show their skill sets which they have an amazing skill set but you can't you know you're just trying to make a film that people aren't gonna enjoy the mm. most so as a director or whatever you just have to kind of be like right these are the main elements of the trip that i think i you know got enough footage from people are going to buzz off and this is what we're going to go with but i think to make that film i more or less spent like a month in front of the computer <laughs> and sometimes those days were like 17 hour oh, days man. you know you're just like without going outside or looking away from the oh, screen vicious. and yeah you just go and go and you never think it could ever take that long when you start but it just it does. does somehow it's all that tiny little just stuff put... just a little bit tighter and a little bit cleaner and a little bit better out a little bit better in and totally yeah but i think in terms of footage i think we had about five terabytes of footage <sighs> which is like one you know pretty chunky hard drive or whatever um but i'm sure there's loads of that footage like headcam footage and stuff that you just don't even look at because it's not relevant to the scene that you're trying mm. to make on that you know you know like I must have hours and hours and hours of jaw dropping flying from from the Karakoram sat on hard drives that maybe we'll just never see the yeah. light of day. I probably should put some YouTube films together of it because it would be nice to show people, but it's you only have it's, so that's time. brutal, isn't it? I mean, at the, when I, I did a lot of the edit, well, I mean, I sat there watching a lot of the edit because we had a bunch of bad sound for the Alaska one. And I had to, I went up to Vancouver and sat with Brian for a couple of days. And, you know, so we had to go out and record some, some voiceover stuff. And so I watched him make it. And, you know, we had, I don't know, 60 something hours of footage that ends up in a 52 minute film and man, you lose a lot of darlings. There's so much there that could be a completely different film, but so oh, totally. much there that's yeah. just, like I said, when, when, after they left, I filmed everything I could, you know, our sound guy just gave us Pablo. He's amazing. Just gave me tons of batteries and, you know, he said, just record yourself all day. And I had all the GoPro stuff and all the batteries. And so I, I recorded everything, everything I did uh, for that last week. And like I said, that's seven minutes at the end of the film. And it's, yeah, there were some crazy really just a montage stuff that of went down. Yeah, exactly. It's just a montage. There's none of that GoPro stuff. But you must have, and I mean, I've not listened to every one of your podcasts. So tell me if you've already spoken about this a bunch, but in that like seven because the first 30 days or whatever with dave just looked you know like a heinous suffer fest mm. for most of the heinous. time where you were, yeah it looked really hard work and i think you both had a huge amount of tenacity and to keep going and i mean also because it's not one thing is doing these things in adventure but another is actually like filming them and turning them into into something that people can enjoy and watch and you guys obviously had helicopter flying around and stuff and probably landing near you, I guess, to, to film camp scenes and stuff. Were you guys close to any point to just being like, <laughs> take us out? This is not what I, I, I will say, <laughs> I don't know that Dave would like me to say this, but you know, we had, you see, you see some real strife between he and I, when we're at that, we're right at the edge of Denali national park. And that was really yeah. the crux because we were there for eight days. We got there and we had this amazing flight there. 
and we had our we had our cash that was there and so coming into there we mm. were really proper starving and we hadn't been with the film crew you can't tell this from the film but we hadn't been with the film crew for days at that point because we we would only okay. the helicopter was coming from a long ways away the filming hel helicopter and so we could only yeah. execute budget wise we could execute him eight days of the whole thing which okay was really stressful because you know you have to execute them the day before we never knew what the weather was going to be the weather forecasts up there mm. were i was going to ask you about that in pakistan but we had no idea what we were going to get so it was often just oh god i hope this works and then if we we would execute him and flying two hours in which is a lot of money with a helicopter you know then you had wow. then you had to so get had it, to fly for two to get hours there. To yeah get he you. was down in homer which is a long ways away from the alaska range and so it was a big yeah. deal. And then we had to nail it. And so uh, when we were sitting there at that camp on the edge of the park, you know, basically snowing, it was just obvious that, okay, that this is not a flying day that we're going to have to wait. And this is not a flying day. We're going to have to wait. Well, Dave was running out of time. And so he started really shifting his mindset that we got to walk out of here. You know, we got to get to the Denali road where they, where the bus people come in to see Denali, which was only a, maybe a two day hike, uh, on the North side. And so he was really that we got to get the fuck out of here. You know, this thing, I gotta, I gotta leave. And, and I just yeah. kept going, no man, that we, you don't really, we've got another week. You know, it's only one flight. We only have one chance. It, you know, if we get the decent, if we get decent weather, it's a hundred k. We'll we'll make it. We've seen that it works. Yeah, we just got to get. It's like four hours. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and so it was. But it was with each passing day of terrible weather, he was just getting oh. really. You know, so it was very much a battle of the of the solidarity. You know, I was just. Man, we can't walk out of here. What an epically shitty end for a film. We gotta, we gotta fly this thing. And then, so when we did, we finally got the weather. Uh, you know, none of that was manufactured. That was just day eight. The sun popped, and it looked like it was going to be epic. Uh, you know, but by the time we launched, it was already going really bad. And I actually wanted to stop. I, I didn't want to fly that day. I wanted to just go. No, we need to go back down to camp and wait. <laughs> and so, luckily. You know, he said, well, I'm not. Had the heli come in yes, that day? Yes, the heli was, was there. Really, was and so there. that was that was the other thing. The heli was there. And so we had to give it a shot. But I mean, when we when we okay. took off, it was just, holy shit, we're not going to get 10K. This isn't going to work. And it worked. And so we got yeah. we got really lucky. But uh, that is the thing about paragliding. You, you never, never know, know until you try. Like, I mean, some days you look at it and you're like, obviously, this is not going to yeah. work. But there's so many days where they surprise Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing about Alaska was that we, it, it, I mean, it, it's, maybe I'm wrong here, but it, it seems like Pakistan, from what I've seen of your films and the other footage, it, it seems more, like you said early, that what's supposed to work works. You know, you can, mm. in, in Alaska, because of the angle of the sun, because it was so low, even in summer, I mean, it would be light all day, but, uh, I can honestly say that I we never had a clue about how things worked. When things looked like they mm. would be epic, we'd bomb out. And when things looked bad, we'd make it work. It was just bizarre. I mean, it, I didn't really get any decent flying until after Dave left. And then it was incredible. That, that was something I wanted to ask you about because you made a ton of progress in that sort of like seven-minute part of the film, which is not really yeah. shown. 
And I feel like you must have had some amazing flights and of course some very scary moments in there. It wasn't that scary. Like, it was how, it how was uh I mean there were, there was the last day getting to getting to goal and you know and and again that's manufactured where they show me crying at the end of the film. We went in th those guys got on a plane that night after I'd already landed there. And so I camped and then we came back to that field. I had all that on GoPro. It was all totally, that's exactly what happened. But, you know, we had to film mm. that kind of that emotion, but that, that last yeah. flight was, was proper scary. And again, none of that's in the film. It, I, I have it all on GoPro, but it was, you know, the footage of me landing in that baseball diamond is, is real. That's my GoPro footage. That's from that day, but it was a battle, but there, you know, basically after Dave left, I, I sat for four days in a tent in horrible weather. And then three days later I made goal. Uh, you know, it was, it was, and, wow. and one of the days after I left, uh, I had a flight very late in the afternoon. It was, you know, it stopped snowing and I could see through this coal. And I mean, I only made it 20 K, but I landed in screaming winds going backwards uh and and really scary i mean it was just tundra it was the most gentle terrain you could ask for in those kind of conditions but i i almost mm. had a you know a nervous breakdown i just thought what am i doing i was by myself now you know i mean i was totally reliant on just me and uh that that was spooky and then the next day got up to this launch and sat there all day just throwing rocks at my shoes just it was blowing over the back i couldn't get off and then that evening made uh, some huge distance, part of it with an eagle flying over this, this glacier. And so again, I could never figure it out, wow. but it was, it was, uh, and then the last, and then two days, uh, the last two days were, I, if I had been smarter about it and knew more about where I was and, and how things would work, it definitely could have broken state records that, you know, mm -hmm. it was, it was good. It was really good. It was okay. like the day i mean the best day of the whole expedition was after i was done and we went back in with the helicopter and got all that footage that seven minutes of footage yeah you know it was okay. i could have easily flown 200k that day i mean no without even thinking anybody wow. could have flown 200k that day it wasn't me it yeah was, you know so there there are days we just didn't get them but there are days up there that, mm. are, that really work i just we could never figure out how <laughs> I, I feel like Pakistan or anywhere really in the world is a bit like that. Like every dog has its mm. day kind of, and it shows, I mean, you were there for 38 days or however long your film, yeah. you kind of said, and it seemed like there weren't many good flying days no. out of that. And if if you do a, a trip to Pakistan, I, I would hope to think that, you know, you're going to get a, quite a bit better ratio mm. than that. Yeah. But also maybe not as good as you might imagine as well like the first the first trip we did in 2000 or the first trip i was involved in at least in 2022 um the first few weeks we barely flew at all we were just doing like big hikes up into the mountain maybe a quick glide down lots of carrying heavy bags mm. and, and stuff and trying to acclimatize for when the conditions did mm. come good and then at the end of the trip there was a week where um we all flew into gourmet tower aaron included and he did some skiing and then um fabby will and myself stayed to to climb the tower aaron flew out that day and and then the next day flew a, a huge flight whilst we were uh climbing and then 
the next day, maybe after that, he flew that monster like 311 yeah. or 12 or whatever it was. And then we had come back out. And I think the day after that, we were um, due to be getting on a plane and flying mm. home. So we had one more good day of weather, which is when I made like my personal best flight there. It, um, when I talked to Aaron about it, he, he seemed to think that, you know, way bigger is on the, on the docket there that it, it actually wasn't that good. Uh, is that, I mean, it, it what, what, mm. what does that require in terms mm. of, I mean, have you got to be there 40 days every year to get that day or, uh, no, I mean, well, interestingly this year, I never felt like we had as good a conditions for cross country flying as we did the previous mm. year. It was always windy mm. somehow. Like there was always 15 or 20 kilometers an hour of wind, which, isn't that comfortable allowed us yeah. to do some great combo flights and you can soar up on things and stuff, but it's not great for then making huge, huge distances. Whereas I felt like the year before the, the days that Aaron had for making those, those big flights, I felt like they were pretty mm. good, mm. you know, for mm. that. But I, I believe Aaron, when he says that he could go bigger or people could go bigger because ultimately, you know, he wasn't flying full out cross country gear there he was flying volbiv harness and and and, and mm. wing and i'm sure if you give that guy like that day now with a bit more knowledge on the place and with his mindset to it he could go bigger mm. for sure or put um, put another another few exceptional pilots in the air with them and they could really go big you know? yeah definitely definitely i mean i managed to fly 230 something kilometers fia triangle there and I wouldn't say I'm, you know, I'd call myself a pretty good pilot, but I wouldn't say I'm like a pilot that can do huge, huge distances and fly super efficiently. Mm -hmm. And as a result, that's my biggest personal triangle that I've ever done. So I think the, the ability cool. to go big there is, 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 is there. But the caveat of that is, you know, sometimes you're flying in some pretty out there places. Like there's one coal that you fly over on that where you're like, you got to scrape over the snowy coal. And then if you don't manage to get over it, cause it's kind of flat, you'd be a long way from mm. anywhere. Um, and that's not to say that flying in Pakistan is always remote because there's tons of valleys and villages and stuff going up there, but it's, it's not like flying a big triangle in the Alps. Yeah. You're right. There's a coffee <laughs> shop and a bus stop and a train stop and <laughs> everything everywhere. Yeah. Uh, last question. What's next? What's, what's on the docket? Hmm. I actually don't know. Maybe to go back to Pakistan again mm. this year. I'm I'm not sure. Like still trying to work that out. But I'm really inspired by trying to use the wings to do other things with, be that skiing or climbing. Mm. I think that's that's interesting. It's kind of new. People haven't been doing it for so long. Feels like you're trying to work it out a bit yourself rather than necessarily be told exactly how mm. it works. And I think there's a lot of interesting ground to be made there. Um, so yeah, whether that be in the Alps or in other places, I'm I'm really keen to 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 keep doing that on a personal level. But I think it's fun to capture, and I think it makes interesting stories. So kind of from a filmmaking point of view as well. But uh, yeah, I don't know. For the filmmaking stuff, I it's my job. So you're always taking on projects that maybe aren't your passion 
project of, sure. of it all but that you know they're still super cool but i've got a few ideas of some bigger things i want to try and work out a way of making mm. and and uh yeah there's ideas always bubbling up in there so <laughs> let's yeah see. I, I lied one more question i forgot to ask you uh so this isn't in the right order but oxygen i didn't see you guys flying with oxygen were you were you using o2 yeah uh no mm, not really mm. uh would probably be the the answer on the first trip not at all on the second trip we had some supplies for it and vesso used it a little bit but um i think Just the weight and the bulkiness yeah the weight the bulkiness coming from a mountaineering background maybe like you're less wanting to use something mm. like that i feel and i i think the reason we're able to fly at more than 7,000 meters without oxygen is only because we're spending time camping at like five, five and a half thousand meters and acclimatizing mm. a bit, not as well as acclimatizing on a proper climbing sure. expedition, but you know, doing that and Vesso, who is not a mountaineer, you know, he was putting himself out there and, and doing that as well. So, um, yeah, I think in order to fly at those altitudes, you either need to probably have a very good idea of how your body will cope at six and a half thousand meters, not being acclimatized and know the signs to look out for when it starts mm. changing. Cause it changes pretty quick. I don't know if you have personal oh, yeah. experience with that, but fly higher too, um, so you have a lot of experience with that. Yes. You, you probably know all about it, but otherwise I think oxygen, you know, if you were just going to Pakistan for flying and not, too worried about landing on mountains and playing in the mountains i think oxygen is a really good mm. idea mm. it's definitely a safe yeah, idea definitely jake fascinating man i'm really glad you reached out and thanks for sharing your films with me they're amazing and beautiful and those of you listening there'll be links in the show notes to those so check them out if you haven't seen them yet and well the the most recent i realize isn't out yet but it will be soon and uh Keep getting after it, man. I dig your work. Thanks a lot. Th thanks very much. And thanks for uh, having me on. And yeah, thanks for being that guy in the community that brings people together to be able to talk about this fun sport. Oh, that we all do. It's a pleasure. Thanks, man. Talk soon. See you at Cloud talk Base. Soon. <laughs> I hope so. If you find the Cloud Base Mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So, for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription, and it makes all of this possible. I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that 
uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear we don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime and hopefully in a, you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support, and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you. Thank you.